are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. There was a church that decided to paint their building. Considering their budget, they realized that doing a full paint job might be too expensive. So one member suggested that they save some money by mixing in some paint thinner to make it go a bit farther. It was the cheapest alternative and at that time the smartest thing they could do. So they added paint thinner. Indeed, it did spread a little bit more. And so they were able to finish the job. But upon completion, suddenly the clouds grew dark. The wind began to howl and a torrential rainstorm began to pour down, washing away all the newly applied paint. Just then, a booming voice came from heaven saying, Repaint and thin no more. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I've been holding on to that for eight years. And I said, David, you are a preacher of the gospel. Do not say anything so stupid and corny like that. But I think after eight years, I just kind of got soft. But it is relevant. Uh, you might hear another corny one eight years from now, Lord willing. Sometimes in our efforts to cut back things in our lives, we leave ourselves spiritually weak and we begin to compromise in our spiritual lives and compromise in our church family here, within our church family. And so we easily deceive ourselves into thinking that we're better off than we really are, especially in terms of our relationship with God, as far as that's concerned. If you recall last week's sermon, James, he makes a point on the issue of prejudice where the church people that he was addressing were discriminating against the poor and were instead in favor of the rich. The church catered to those who were wealthy, had wealth and power, presumably because they thought there might be reciprocity, right? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Meanwhile, they would simply ignore the, the lower class folks. And it's from that point where this compromise, self-justifying game playing begins, and it starts with being self-deceived and thinking that what we're doing is fine. That I'm fine. That we're not hurting people, really. And that's not that big a deal. And one way in which we do this is by trying to put a positive spin on our sins. Now, reading between the lines, the way that James addresses the readers in verse 8, it seems to indicate that perhaps the church was trying to justify their focus on the rich by saying, well, James, we're just following the great commandment, right? Love one another. It, it just happens to be that the people we're loving are just extremely wealthy. What's the big deal? Look, it's okay, obviously, to love the wealthy and the poor. That's obvious. But James says if you really, really love your neighbors, he's saying, these rich people, then it's okay. But he's saying, let's be real here. I don't think, I don't think you're living, loving them because God's telling you to love them. I think there's an ulterior motive. I mean, let's be honest. It's easy to love the lovable people, isn't it? Wouldn't you agree? Isn't it easy to love those with great personalities? Right? It's so easy. It's easy to love those who are, as we will call it, kindred spirits, who are just really cool and they get you. It's easy to love people who are kind. It's hard to love those who are bitter and who got a chip on their shoulders. It's hard to love people who are narrow-minded. It's hard to love people who just seem to 
to be mad at the world and everything and everyone around them. The love we are to offer people is a love that does not discriminate. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say this. I want to love you indiscriminately. <laughs> Was that kind of a weird thing to say? <laughs> I want to love you indiscriminately. We are commanded to love our neighbors, period. Period. And Jesus, he further illustrates this in Luke 10 in the gospel. I'm sorry, in the, uh, the gospel of Luke chapter 10 in the Good Samaritan parable. The Samaritans were despised, looked down upon people. They were intermarrying with other nations, making them impure in the eyes of the Jews. Not only that, it created a mixed religion, so they ultimately didn't follow the law of God. So there was nothing good about them, and they were just hated. And yet Jesus illustrates how the Samaritan was the one who helped the beaten and robbed man, not the priest, not the Levite, these alleged compassionate, God-serving, holy men. No, it was the unclean, impure, irreligious, ungodly Samaritan that truly demonstrated love to his neighbor without discrimination, without prejudice. Now, here's the thing. We can't try to justify what we do or how we treat people in any positive way. You just can't do it. You can't justify yourself. You can't say to God, well, God, I'm not that bad of a person. I don't usually do this or do that. You can't try to put any positive spin on this. We can't say, well, I only hang out with people in church who are in my same age group or same life stage. Or I only befriend people who've gone to college and have an education because speaking to anyone who doesn't have a Harvard degree is just so frustrating. Or my group of friends here are people who have only suffered the way I have, so therefore anyone who's had an easy life, they don't get me, so forget them. I only want to mingle and hang out with people who've gone through through hell and back with, like me. That's showing favoritism. And God, he hates it. It's mentalities like that that divide churches. In fact, God hates discrimination so much that the frightening issue discussed here is that the person who shows favoritism to someone, whether they're wealthy or powerful, is on the same level before God as the adulterer and murderer. Can you believe that? Why? Because God will judge us for favoring others and for those who expect favor from others. Loving the lovable isn't hard, people. So don't kid yourselves. Don't think, well, Pastor Dave, you have no idea. I am just the most compassionate. Maybe so to people who are easy to love. Don't think that you're somehow doing the work of God by befriending people who are simply replicas of your own heart and mind. That's easy, people. Come on. I know someone who left our ministry for one purpose. Was it because there was no gospel preaching down here? No, that wasn't it. Was it because there was no opportunity for growth here? No, that wasn't it. We have multiple discipleships like Pastor Esther was saying. We're going to have a women's ministry, a guy's ministry, membership classes and things like that. Was it because there's no room to serve? Absolutely not. Just like Pastor Esther said, we have a WANA, we have youth ministry, children's ministry, English ministry, even the Korean ministry where people can serve and do anything. Then what was the reason? It was because, this person said, there wasn't enough professional people like me. And so this person says, I need my needs catered to. I think that's wrong. 
God will judge us for favoring others and for expecting favor from others. You know, last pa- this past week, I had a meeting with five of our college students, and they, uh, they wanted to have a discussion on some various topics on systematic theology. They called me, and they said, Pastor David, can we have a discussion on systematic theology? Can you believe that? I remember the days when my college kids would call me up and ask if I want to eat ice cream and play basketball. And now these guys are like, due to the rationalist system of the 18th century, it's a true foundational theology that represents a basic alteration of perspective. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you sure you don't want ice cream? <laughs> Man, these guys are getting smart. Maybe I'm getting dumber. I don't know. Well, from our discussion, they said something really edifying, especially two of our sisters or two of our college girls. They said something really encouraging. And if they're in your life group, I won't say their name right now, but I want you to be encouraged by what they're saying. They said this. I asked them how their life group went. And they said, by the way, their life group consisted of them and then the older uh, members of our, of our ministry. These girls are only 18, 19 years old. And they said, Pastor David, I really love my life group. And they said, I'm learning so much from them, and I just really like the people. That's what they said. These girls who are 18, 19 years old, and they're mingling and and they're doing, sharing prayer requests and discussing the sermon with people who are 30, 40, 50 years old maybe. Loving people, especially our own church brothers and sisters, it's got to be unconditional. We must stop placing some warped personal requirements on people, forcing them to jump through hoops, your own personal hoops to get your hug. you got to stop that. And verses 9 and 11 says something pretty interesting. Let me read it out loud. Says from starting from verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, this sounds really opposite from one, what all the Jewish rabbis and teachers have been teaching up from that point. Because they all have been saying, rather than one act of obedience giving us merit, Here we read from verses 9 and 11 that one act of disobedience gives us guilt. One act of transgression, one act of sin, of disobedience brings guilt. Now think about this from a logical standpoint. If you dock your boat and use a chain to anchor it, what happens when one chain link breaks? The entire boat slips away. Or what about crime? How many laws do you have to break to go to jail, 2, 5, 10, 15, 20? No. All it takes is one to make a person guilty before the court and law of the land. As a parent, I have a habit when disciplining my daughter to do the countdown. Some, some of you guys who are parents, you guys do the countdown, right, before the swift hammer of justice falls upon her. So she'll grab, let's say, mommy's lipstick, and I'll say, Ada, no, put it down. But she doesn't. So I start counting. One... That's, not, that's counting up, isn't it? Three, two, one. But here's the thing. When did she disobey? Was it at three, two, or one? Or was it when I said before, put it down, and she refused? You see, when a person's only a foot outside their home or a mile outside their home, they're still outside their home. The point is this that James is trying to make. Sin is sin. No matter how big or how small, it will incur guilt. We can't trade off our good deeds to pay 
for our bad because in the end, the bad will always taint and always destroy the good. It will always overshadow any good or any merit we might have thought we had. As a lover of Vietnamese noodle pho, all it takes is one fly or one hair to ruin the entire bowl. Right? Sometimes <laughs> I still eat it because I say, well, it looks like my hair. We keep thinking that God's going to grade us on some curve, some big spiritual curve that at the end of our lives we'll somehow be able to stand before the Almighty God and say, God, I should be allowed into your presence, into your eternal home, because I am not as bad as Hitler, as Stalin, as those hijackers, or as that grumpy old neighbor who's always on my case. You see, God, he deals with the individual, not the collective. And to the individual, to you and to me, he demands this. He demands obedience and condemns every single act of disobedience. So much so that this entire conversation, discussion of sin, came from a simple act of giving special preferential treatment to someone because he is rich. Because even that seemingly trivial act of partiality that we're talking about, flies into the perfect and holy, incorruptible face and standard of God. And the truth is, we're not only guilty of committing one or two sins, we are guilty of many, many sins in our lives. And sometimes we think we don't sin that often, but we do. Let's be honest. Let's say, okay, let's say that that you thought of something impure or wicked or hateful, and you commit that thought maybe 10 times a day, maybe five times. Maybe for some of you guys who are self-professed saints, only three times, okay? So three times a day, you think something bad in your mind. Then that would mean you sin 21 times a week, which is over 1,000 times a year, 1,092 to be exact. And if you live for, let's say, 50 years, that would mean you have committed over 50,000 sins against God. There is no way that we can stand before a holy and perfect God and justify ourselves because when we stand before him, the law of God condemns us. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Leaving us hopeless and to face God's certain judgment. You have committed sin after sin. You cannot, students, you cannot be a perfect student. Why? Because you are guilty of imperfection. You cannot be a perfect mother because you stand guilty. You cannot be a perfect father because you stand guilty. You cannot be a perfect spouse because you stand guilty. You cannot be a perfect member of Shining Star because you stand guilty. I cannot be a perfect pastor because I stand guilty. You see, before the law, of God, I stand guilty. We stand guilty in the eyes of God's righteous law. Guilty, guilty, guilty. But in Christ, where there's bad news, there's also good news. There's the gospel. If you're not seeing the gospel here by now, then you're missing James's entire point, even if it's not spelled out. You see, the truth of the gospel message is the entire undercurrent of this entire text, just as it is throughout the entire Bible. You see, the mercy of God has triumphed over judgment. Hallelujah. Amen. You know how people 
And typically people who don't truly understand the Bible will say things, oh, you Christians need to start reading your Bible. I'm like, okay, what do you mean? They say, well, don't you know that God is accepting and loves everyone? So you should also love everyone. Now, it's true that God is love. The Bible says that he hates wickedness, that he does not even delight in the death of the wicked. So what does that mean? It means that God, he's truly one who's compassionate. He is loving. He is kind. He is willing to suffer a long time for you and for me. But with that great love, God is also a just judge. He can't. <laughs> the other day, uh, sorry for all these illustrations concerning my daughter, but I, I can't help it. We're trying to help her drink through an actual cup instead of drinking from a baby cup. I don't know what do we call those things. And so we, sippy cup. So I gave her a cup. It's a, it's a plastic cup for kids. It's a practicing. And she literally looks at it, sniffs it, kind of sips it, puts it down, looks at me, and just <laughs> throws it across. And I'm like, <laughs> it was the most, at the same time, it was hilarious too. And so she's looked at it. I'm like, Ada, no. And she goes and she picks it up. And I look at her. I'm just, <laughs> I can't help but love her. And I just wink at him like, that's so horribly cute. <laughs> God, he can't do that with us, though. He can't wink at sin and allow some to skate by just because he wants to be cool with us or because he wants to give us special treatment. No, God's justice is definitive and it is absolute. He says this in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. He says, the soul that sins will die. That is his promise. The soul that sins will die. So God, he had a masterful plan. It was a plan that he made in his infinite wisdom before the world began, and that was God became man in the person of Jesus. God the Son became the Son of Man. The Son of Man lived under the very law that you and I lived, but unlike us, he lived it perfectly. In absolute righteousness, so he earned the blessings from the Father. Then he obediently and willingly went to the cross where like an unblemished, pure lamb of Jewish sacrifices, he became an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it was then on that cross that God, he took all my sins, all 50,000 of those transgressions, all 50,000 of those law breaks, of those infractions of, of his law. God took all my sins and he placed it and he dumped it on his son Jesus. And it was there. God, the just judge, punished his one and only son in my place. And his son cried out, Father, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then his very last breath, the Son of Man said, it is finished, tetelestai, meaning this, paid in full. Paid in full. And so now because of Jesus' death in our place, the justice of God is satisfied. In Christ, mercy has won over judgment. Mercy has triumphed over judgment. In Christ, God's grace has prevailed over the condemnation of God's law. Romans 3, 23, 26 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you and me right now, people. And are justified 
by his grace as a gift. You see, it's nothing we earn. It's given. It's a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has put forward as a propitiation, or that means satisfaction, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He has forgiven us, you see. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we might be just and the justifier of the one who has in faith in Christ Jesus. You see, all our lives, and I end with this, all our lives we are taught that if you do your best, you'll be fine. Or that you'll get what you pay for. There's no free lunch. If you do what's right, you'll be rewarded. And if you mess up, you'll have to pay. That's what we learn. And that's what we teach our children. And that's what we teach all these people. And all that is true to a certain extent under the law. Because we have to depend on the law of the land. Because the law protects the innocent and punishes the guilty. But this morning, this afternoon I should say, I'm sorry. I declare, declare to you that under the law of God, no one stands innocent before him. And no one is protected from his judgment. We are living by a different set of standards, my friends. But when you are under the amazing banner of Jesus Christ to those who trust in his life, death, and resurrection, mercy has prevailed over judgment before, because in Christ, we who were once guilty are now forgiven. And we can go free. We who were once dead to sin are now alive by his grace. And we who have been destroyed and destroyed our lives are now fully restored. Amen. The same unconditional, unmerited love God extends to all people from all walks of life, from all socioeconomic backgrounds, from all stages in life, from rich or poor, educated or non-educated, lovable or unlovable, clean or filthy, His grace and love is extended to all. And that's why James says, to sum up, in this passage, from this text, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is this. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself without partiality, without discrimination, because of the love that God has extended to you without partiality. Let's pray. You might do something a little bit more unconventional here right now, but seeing how I purposely shorten the sermon length. I really feel called that we need to pray, invest in prayer a little bit more. And so what I want to do is as the praising comes up and they put out some background music, if you would be so willing to just sit next to someone, perhaps someone that you don't even know, even if you know them, that's fine too. But if you could lift up that person in prayer, you may not know exactly what's going on in their hearts, but would you trust in the Spirit of God to tell you? And would you just, not just bless, but, but to pray for that brother, pray for that sister. Search your heart, search theirs. And would you lift them up? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to come and, and intervene and open their hearts and their minds that they would, their hearts would truly be broken?
and understand what has just been said today? That in Christ Jesus, mercy and the grace of God will always triumph over all judgment. That now there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And maybe some of you guys are feeling just especially guilty today for whatever sins that you've committed. Maybe you feel that, maybe you think you know the gospel. But in actuality, you really don't. Whatever the case might be, can I go ahead and, and as, I know this seems uncomfortable because you don't know everyone. And, and right now, you're all probably thinking, Pastor, can you just do the typical closing prayer so we can go back downstairs, eat our pizza, and leave the church? But I want to challenge you just for a few minutes. Can you lift that brother or that sister up? Can you pray for them? If they're sitting next to you, by all means, go ahead and lift them up. If there's someone who's not next to you, don't just expect them to come to you. Maybe you should go up to them. So let's take a moment just to pray, okay? Let's try this. Let's pray. Let's pray.